On this episode, we're taking a minute to introduce ourselves, and then we are diving headfirst into the new hypertension treatment guidelines. Stay tuned. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the official first episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. My name is Mike Corvino. With me is my good buddy, Cole Swanson. We're going to take this time to kind of introduce ourselves, explain what we're doing on the podcast, and kind of let you know what's what's in for the future. So I'm going to let Cole take it away first. Uh, to give you some background, I had Cole on my rotation when he's finishing up pharmacy school right now. So I met him first on my rotation. He did a phenomenal job, and uh, I've been trying to keep in touch with him ever since because I think he's definitely going places. So I'm going to let him uh, introduce himself and uh, explain what he's what he's all about. All right, Mike. Uh, hey, everybody. So I'm a fourth-year pharmacy student down here in Charleston. I did my undergrad at USC, um, finishing up school in May, pretty pumped about that, uh, ready to get through all these rotations. Uh, definitely more interested in uh, outpatient medicine, that's more of my passion. Uh, I did just come off an inpatient rotation, um, learned a lot, got to see that side of things, uh, but that's pretty much what I'm going for is uh, something outpatient, something in the community, um, and yeah, I'm excited to be here. How's it going, Mike? You know, can't complain. So, uh, my name is Mike Corvino, like I said. I'm a pharmacist based out of South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, I work primarily in a community pharmacy setting. Uh, I manage a pharmacy. And I also uh, am working with patients that have diabetes, and they're also employees of the city of Charleston. So, they have this program where if you're a city employee, you have diabetes, you can get enrolled to see a physician once every three to six months and then a PharmD once every either month all the way up to once every three months, depending on how well controlled they are. And as long as they meet the criteria, they have their A1C starts to be under better control. Uh, the patients will have their medications paid for and the city will take care of all their expenses. So it's a very cool, cool program that I've been able to be involved in. And then uh, my most recent adventure is uh, starting uh, to teach with the PA school that's starting here in Charleston. Um, I graduated from a little tiny school called Charleston Southern University, and they are just now recently starting a physician assistant program. So they've brought me on to uh, teach the the pharmacology, pharmacotherapy, if you will, uh, section of their program. So going to try that out. Uh, That'll be my first kind of intro to teaching officially, like in a class. And so nervous and excited about that all at the same time but uh yeah we'll see how it goes awesome yeah mike's doing big things so uh stick around we'll see what's happening trying to hack the pharmacy culture and see what we can what kind of doors we can open so cole what kind of stuff do we want to do with the podcast um so pretty much why are we doing the podcast um we want to get guests on here in different specialties uh different professions uh you mentioned that you're adjunct professor at a PA school. We want to get uh, some PAs in here, maybe some PA students to talk about their professions, Um, med students, doctors, NPs, nurses, anybody really. We want to promote interprofessionalism. Uh, We want to hear what they have to say. So um, I think the general layout you mentioned would be kind of to interview them and kind of um, just go through a topic. Speak to that. Do you know any like physicians or 
PAs yeah. possibly. I know some. I guess we'll uh, we'll find out if we can coax them into getting on here and uh, getting under the lights. <laughs> I'm joking because uh, Cole's fiance is will be soon to be a PA. Yes. You got a brother, older brother. Older brother older is a med student, med student soon student, to be a so. uh, physician. So yeah, got I've got a family, got of a few connections. professionals. So they'll probably start an empire soon. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> but yeah, so we're definitely going to try to bring in some specialties. I'd like to do some evidence-based medicine, some case studies, things like that, but bring in somebody that is uh, more familiar with a particular subject than cholerae and go through basically just what they do, how they kind of got to where they are, whether it was their time in residency or their time in their particular specialty. Uh, we have a few people that we're planning on having on that have some pretty cool stories because they've been practicing pharmacy for quite some time. And so we can kind of see how things have shifted. Uh, the other thing I really want to do with this podcast is, like I said earlier, open doors. Like I want students to see that whether you have a PharmD or an MD, PA, whatever it is, MP, that you, when you have that degree, there's so many other avenues that you can go into other than just the traditional role of, you know, working in a hospital, working in this clinic or doing this. And I, I want people to kind of start seeing themselves as, as almost like a personal brand, if you will, and then opening more doors to, to jump into new things as technology starts to change, telehealth starts becoming more of a factor. There's going to be so many more avenues that healthcare professionals can go to. And, and I'm excited to kind of see what you know that means for me personally and also for for all of you listening and and the students especially so you guys are so early in your career and seeing like all these different doors that can't open very very soon for you awesome yeah and so that's that's one thing we want to do is teach you or help or open you up to different professions and the other thing is we want to um teach you and we'll learn in the process about medicine because that's what we love doing absolutely we want to learn every day that's our goal (laughs) so um one of the first things we're going to talk about today, we obviously don't have a guest since this is episode uh, one, but uh, one of the things we're going to talk about is something that's a little bit controversial, I guess you could say. It's the new blood pressure guidelines. So if you haven't read those, make sure you go check them out. It's only 400 pages. I yeah, think. it's only 400 pages, so it's don't be lazy. Read. <laughs> but um, we're going to kind of go through some of the summaries and and look you know, what, what changes they've brought about and, and present some of the data, and then we'll obviously let you form your own opinion and then you can always hit us up on uh, social media and let us know what you think if you think we're completely wrong tell us we're we're, we're totally open to that we don't get our feelings hurt very yeah, mike might even invite you on here and uh, argue with you a little yeah, bit so maybe. who knows so what do you want to start so if you're not familiar these are the uh, american college of cardiology and american heart association updated 2017 guidelines it's really the first update since 2003 so this is um this is the update to JNC seven, essentially. But wait, um, don't we have JNC eight? We isn't do that, have JNC eight. That guidelines? Well, yeah. What's up with that? So one of the, one of the big, I guess I'll say it again, controversies with JNC eight was that I, they weren't technically supposed to be guidelines when they were when they came out. It was expert opinion, and the experts that were voting on those official quote-unquote guidelines that were presented were, were very torn. What was it, like eight to six mm-hmm. vote? It was close. Um, yeah. So there was not a uh, not a good consensus on whether or not those goals should have been in place, especially when they backed up the, the blood pressure goals for elderly, when patients 60 and over, to 150 over 90. Uh, that was based loosely on some of the trials. Um, HiVet was one I know that they talk about. Uh, but HiVet, if you all remember, was done in patients that were 80 to 100 years old. And so they just went ahead and 
dropped that number down to 60 and called it a day. Uh, there's other studies as well that use that blood pressure goal, but there's a lot of people who were not happy with JNC eight when they came yeah. out. And so some people still regard JNC seven as the actual last update. Right. And and that's kind of how they addressed it when they presented these guidelines. And there was, I mean, there was so much polarity between um, or among the group that decided on it. Didn't they submit a minority report essentially um, saying that they disagreed with the, the results? Exactly. So, yeah. That, that JNC eight itself was, was uh pretty controversial. So this is the update to the official guidelines from 2003 JNC 7. Um, so what's what's the big um, five numbers, the big change that's, that's happened uh, with this update? So I guess the biggest thing I noticed right off the bat was the, the, how the blood pressure categories have shifted. So this these new guidelines, they basically represent um, normal blood pressure as being less than 120, uh, for systolic and less than 80 for diastolic. So you have to have both of those numbers being less less than 120 over less than 80. You can't have one be less and the other not. You have to have both of them, and then you're considered to have normal blood pressure. Now you're considered elevated when your, blood, when your systolic blood pressure is 120 to 129, and your diastolic is still less than 80. So they, the big switch, obviously, is their stage one hypertension is now can be two things can get you there. One can be a systolic blood pressure of 130 to 139, or you could have a diastolic of 80 to 89. So what happened to prehypertension? Poor, uh, poor prehypertension is gone now. So it's just elevated. Yeah, That's all you got. Left got. Out of the new Normal elevated stage one. And, and so if you think about it, the, the wording is, is weird because stage one, you could have somebody who's, let's say, their systolic is 125, but their diastolic is 89. Technically, they're still stage one hypertension. Based on the diastolic. Yeah, yep. based on just the diastolic. Because it has to be systolic and diastolic. Either one of those can put you in that range. The uh, stage two is basically anything over 140, uh, 140 or over. And then for diastolic is anything 90 or over is stage two. So... Big changes as far as how they classify hypertension, and that's I think what a lot of people are having trouble kind of getting their heads around, and kind mm-hmm. of accepting is that they don't like that a lot of people now are considered to be to have to have hypertension. Right. So so, so it's moved essentially from the the bait the stage one being one forty over ninety down to one thirty over eighty. So if you think about it, a lot more people are going to have hypertension. And so right now about 32%, this is per the um, American Heart Association, about 32% of American adults have hypertension. And with the new change in guidelines, it'll increase by about 16%. Um, I believe it was 16% um, or 14%. So 46% of adults will now have stage one hypertension. So um, I think the big concern, there's definitely arguments on both sides for um for these guidelines and one of the um people who may be naysayers of them would say well now a whole bunch of people are going to be started on hypertensive medication so what do you say to that That, i mean that makes sense if more people have hypertension then more people are going to be started on meds right yeah that's definitely one of the arguments i keep hearing is this is just big pharma uh you know just trying to push their their dollars the the issue i have with that argument is all the meds they recommend 
one all have generics they're all super cheap and if you look at for instance like the thiazide diuretics they they recommend chlorothaladone specifically based on the uh, all hat trial ship trial some of the other big ones uh chlorothaladone is having evidence you know, evidence behind it and, and outcome data and so they recommend that as opposed to like hydrochlorothiazide that we see typically given and chlorothaladone is very cheap mm-hmm. uh, and dapamide would be another uh, another medication that is uh, another thiazide that is uh, evidence-based has outcome data it's even cheaper i mean yeah. it's dapamide's on the four dollar list at walmart yeah which a lot of people you know don't see dapamide much and i think it's because people think that it's older or it's expensive it's not used very often but no it's cheap cheaper than chlorothaladone and close to as cheap as um hydrochlorothiazide depending on where you are yeah and there's actually data backing it up yeah. that shows that it maybe increases mortality things like that mm-hmm so, or decreases mortality. Yeah, yeah, decreases. I guess you wouldn't want to increase mortality. That'd be yeah, bad. Wouldn't be, wouldn't wouldn't be, be great with the medication, I guess. <laughs> so um, walk us through the uh, algorithm Sure. for the, the treatment algorithm. So basically, the concern is that a lot of people are going to be started on, um, on medication because they're going to be diagnosed with stage one, uh, but not necessarily the case. So if you're less than 120 over 80, so you're just normal, um, obviously you're just going to promote optimal lifestyle habits, keep doing what you're doing, uh, and we'll see in a year and we'll see what happens. Um, if you're elevated, so the 120 to 129 range with less than 80, that's when you're saying, hey, uh, you're kind of getting up there. We might need to take a closer look at this. So why don't we you know, look at your eating habits. Let's see if we can start you on an exercise regimen and we'll follow you a little more closely, kind of three to six month um, type of situation. So that's with elevated. With stage one, so the 130 over 80 or above 130 over 80, not everyone there is indicated for pharmacologic therapy. So another big change with these guidelines is similar to, I guess, statins really and kind of where they've gone in the last um, couple years. And just in general, we're treating these patients based on their risk for cardiovascular events because that's what kills people. So in stage one, you have to have an ASCVD risk greater than 10% um, to be indicated for pharmacologic therapy. And if you're not familiar with the ASCVD risk calculator, what is that? So the ASCVD risk calculator, and they've actually updated it now, so it's the ASCVD Plus, uh, but it's basically a calculator you can get. It's a free app, um, and the Plus is is based on like the Million Hearts study, things like that, that um, have shown this. They give you a risk percentage of, of having some kind of a cardiovascular event um, in the future. And so this the app, you can put in the patient's lab, so total cholesterol, uh, HDL, LDL, systolic blood pressure, whether or not they have diabetes, whether or not they're on hypertension treatment, whether or not they're a smoker, whether or not they're on a statin, or whether or not they're on aspirin therapies, the, the two new criteria that were added right. for the plus. And it'll spit out a percentage of what that person's 10-year risk looks like of having some sort of an event. And so, one, this, this gives us an opportunity to say, okay, well, if you stop smoking, you can lower your risk by this much, or if you are uh, taking a statin, you lower your risk by this much. But it also allows us now to see, okay, should we start someone on hypertension therapy or should we start someone on a statin right. because they're at a higher risk? Right. And um, so, yeah, he mentioned the two big updates. You can also get this calculator online. I know a lot of physicians who use MD Calc and it's on there too. Be a little bit careful because I think from what they were saying, it's not necessarily updated to the ASCVD+. So if you don't see that um, the option to choose if they're on aspirin therapy 
or if they're on statin therapy, then it might not be up to date. Um, but I mean, we've all got smartphones now, or at least most, most, uh, physicians, maybe most people and, and a lot of hospitals and health systems, they provide those for you also. So just download it. It's easy. Um, and it's something really quick that you can do to, um, determine whether a patient needs to be on these types of medications. So that's one thing that's going to keep, um, patients in this stage one from being necessarily started on antihypertensive medication. So if it's less than 10, what do you do? You go to non-pharmacologic therapy, just like an elevated, um, and you follow them in three to six months. And so, uh, I think one positive from this, um, is that a lot of people are going to be flagged a little bit earlier to say, Hey, I need to start changing my lifestyle. I need to start cutting out the salt. Um, I need to change my diet so I can get these numbers down and hopefully delay being started, um, on an antihypertensive medication. Another thing that they really emphasize in these guidelines is um, taking blood pressures correctly, um, doing two to three measurements at two different times uh, to make sure that this person actually does have hypertension before you start them on an antihypertensive uh, medication. Um, and so can you speak to, to taking blood pressures correctly, essentially, and what people should be aware of? Yeah, so it, if you go into a physician's office or a clinic or a pharmacy, for that matter, the the odds of taking having someone either take your blood pressure correctly or you t- use, taking your own blood pressure correctly using one of the automated machines is is very unlikely. Uh, patients are supposed to be sitting, you know, for a few minutes before you know completely at rest and to allow themselves to to relax. Most patients walk in, sit down, and immediately have their blood pressure taken, or will take their uh, blood pressure themselves as soon as they walk into a, a grocery store or whatever has an automated cuff. And um, I'll talk about, I'll use my dad as an example for this. He'll be glad I'm using him as an example, I'm sure. <laughs> but uh, I'll get a call from him and, or a text from him and he'll say, hey, my blood pressure is elevated. Should I, should I be worried? And, you know, it'll be like 140 something. And I'll ask him, uh, well, when you went to take your blood pressure, did you sit down at the cuff for about five minutes? Let yourself relax. No, no, I didn't. Do it. And then he'll text me back, you know, a few minutes later. Okay, it's it's down again, and it happens mm-hmm. all the time. He always scares himself when he looks at it because he never wants to sit down for the five minutes and just chill for a second, and and allow his blood pressure to come down. But it's something that a lot of us do. We, we're in a hurry, and so we don't uh, we don't take that time to to let our our blood pressure come down naturally from when, us being up walking around, and so. Also having the feet on the floor, having your, your arm that's being measured, that the cuff is on, uh, being at a heart level, um, not being suspended in the air or, or down low. Uh, there's there's so many factors that go into it. White, ho- white coat hypertension mm-hmm. is a huge factor. And they so, actually address that in the guidelines. They emphasize the importance of um, trying to get your patients to monitor it at home and see if there's a big difference between when they're coming in and when they're at home because they might have white coat hypertension and shouldn't necessarily be on meds. They also address if the patient's blood pressure is normal in the, um, in the MD office, but it, or the, you know, whoever's office, um, but it's elevated at home. So the importance of monitoring at home and having patients kind of take control of their hypertension management, um, they reference that in here too. It's important. Yeah. And and the white coat hypertension, they also brought up in, in sprint trials. So sprint was one of the big studies that, uh, was published that was kind of responsible for these new recommendations, and they actually recommended 
that the, the or they had the, the physician or the clinician, whoever it was, step out of the room and let the patient use. I think what what was the blood pressure they use? Like True Blue, True BP. True BP like sounds right to me. Yeah. Um, they're that brand of of cuff where the patient can can take their own blood pressure, and uh, they had them do it that way to kind of eliminate some of that white coat hypertension, mm-hmm. um, or even so, human error of the person taking the blood pressure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm sure that I've taken several hundreds, thousands of blood pressures, but I'm, I'm sure that I've, I've messed it up on, you know, on occasion. So, <laughs> Just uh, every once in a while. Yeah. Not often. So definitely human error is a huge factor as well. But, um, so go a little bit further. So you said, the what happens if someone is 140 over 90? Sure. What, what kind of pharmacotherapy are we looking at? So that's when you get into the stage two range. Um, and at that point, they're automatically indicated for um, hypertensive therapy or antihypertensive therapy. So it doesn't matter what their ASCVD risk is. If it's greater than 140 over 90, then they are indicated for at least one medication. And of course, non-pharmacologic therapy, they emphasize that a lot in the guidelines. Um, they mentioned that at stage two, they'll probably going to be... Um, they're probably going to need two antihypertensive medications, but they also say if they're greater than 20 millimeters of mercury um, away from their goal as far as systolic blood pressure goes. So um, they might be able to get away with, with one med greater than 140 over 90, but once you get around the 150 range, they're probably going to need two. So just keep that in mind. Um, and yeah, so that's those are the stages. There's also hypertensive crisis, which is still um, greater than 180 systolic and greater than 120 diastolic without any... Um, organ damage um, acutely or anything like that that's still crisis um, but yeah we're we're mainly talking about the changes with the with those initial stages and and so again if you have a patient that meets the criteria for stage one so they're in that 130 systolic range 130 to 139 the the guidelines do not specify starting pharmacotherapy correct yes so the reason for that is actually based on evidence as well. There was a big meta-analysis that was that was released. I believe it was a JAMA Internal Medicine uh, yeah. the day after these guidelines were published. And when they looked at patients being started on pharmacotherapy, they found that if you start on patients 130 to 139 systolic, there was no you know mortality benefit. Whereas if you started patients who were already above 140, uh, you did get a benefit. So that's why the I'm I'm assuming the guidelines maybe had a sneak peek yeah. at this meta analysis before it was published, but um, this is some evidence that it, that shows you know kind of it kind of backs up their recommendations of just just using lifestyle modifications, and and to me that takes away some of the argument where people are frustrated where okay well now all these people have hypertension, you know we're not encouraging them to start pharmacotherapy we're encouraging them to live healthier lifestyles which. I'd be hard pressed to find too many people who would argue that that's a bad thing. Right. Uh, you know, if you, if you supposedly have your, you now have stage one hypertension. I think for me anyway, I take that as it just makes it more real for the patient. Whereas, Oh, you could potentially, you have pre uh, hypertension and you may or may not have hypertension later on. It may be a problem like this for them. They, you don't have to start therapy now, but you do have high blood pressure, hypertension, and so if you do these modifications, though, you don't have to go on therapy. I, I feel like it makes it a little bit more real, but that's just, you know, my opinion. Yeah, and a couple of things to add to that. So I meant to mention that these guidelines just came out, I think, November 13th at 11 a.m., the 11th hour. Actually, the 11th hour might be p.m., I don't know. Um, but they're brand new, so you <laughs> can— Sounds Im- cool, though. You, yeah, it does sound cool. 
Uh, you can impress uh, all your friends with all your knowledge of the new blood pressure guidelines. And I mean, hypertension is is one of the more ubiquitous um, disease states. So I mean, this is going to affect most practices, especially of course primary care um, and family medicine, physicians, PAs, pharmacists, NPs, and the like. But it, it really affects everybody. Um, and you mentioned that they're not necessarily indicated in stage one automatically for um, antihypertensives, but um, if their ASCV risk is greater than 10%, then they are. And I think that yes, that been, that um, demonstrates uh, the importance that blo- of blood pressure in reducing cardiovascular events. It's one of the most important things along with um, smoking and um, controlling your diabetes and those sorts of things. Um, but it really is... Being is, chronologically gifted. Right. So it really is um, super important, and I think that's emphasized in these guidelines. Yeah. So... You mentioned uh, specific disease states and things like that. What one of the questions I got asked yesterday by an intern I was working with, you know, the ADA still recommends their patients with diabetes be treated to a blood pressure of one forty over ninety. Mm-hmm. What do these guidelines recommend for diabetes? So a good, um, if you're trying to remember or trying to understand what the goal blood pressures are based on these guidelines, um, it's pretty simple. Pretty much across the board, it's one thirty over eighty. Um, so for diabetes, it, they're recommending 130 over 80. Um, and I think that we mentioned the sprint trial and other things, um, tend to support going a little bit lower than 140 over 90. I think the only caveats to that would be in a patient with an intracranial, acute intracranial hemorrhage, uh, acute ischemic stroke. Um, they even recommend for, for elderly patients over the age of 65, still shooting for that goal of 130 over 80. If they're more or less healthy, they do make a caveat. Um, if a patient is that age and they have a lot of comorbidities, they have a low life expectancy, then that's, you know, you want to treat the patient, not the numbers. Um, and of course, if a patient, you're trying to get them lower and they're having hypotension or a lot of electrolyte abnormalities, um, then, you know, treat the patient, not the numbers, but these are just the, the recommendations. So pretty much across the board, less than 130 over 80 is the goal. And I wasn't going to go this route, but I heard you mention the the sprint and things, and I, I know there's going to be somebody who's just like super up on their literature and sitting in their car or wherever you're listening to this, and they're saying, but no, the sprint didn't include patients with diabetes, mm-hmm. so no, Cole, you're wrong, because I'm familiar with the Accord trial, and the mm-hmm. Accord trial showed that we cause harm, or at least no benefit, when we increase patients with uh or increase the the intensity of blood pressure control in patients with diabetes. Um, one of the the arguments that and that's an argument that's that's made all the time. It's a very valid argument. Reasonable, yeah. Um, one of the the I'll give you this little piece to kind of chew on a little bit and make your own conclusion. But if you're not familiar with how the the study the Accord study was set up, it was a, a two by two factorial study, and they looked at patients with intensive glucose control, intensive A1C control versus more standard. And then at the same time, we're looking at blood pressure, uh, more intensive blood pressure control versus standard blood pressure control. And in the A1C arm, the lower, the more intensive A1C control they had actually ended up killing people. And so there was, there was mortality when you lower A1C too low, basically. Increased mortality this time. Yes. Increased mortality, yes. Did I say it backwards again? No, you're good. Okay, good. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> and uh, so those same patients were also enrolled in the hypertension arm as well, obviously, because it's 2 by 2 factorial. And 
Uh, so some of those patients in the blood pressure arm that were having lower blood pressure goals were also in the more intense glucose control, whereas some of them may have been in the more intense glucose control, but also in the more standard blood pressure arm, and, and they were all randomized. So when we look at the data, there was no benefit overall, but we did see a benefit in stroke. We, we saw a decrease in stroke when you lower blood pressure. But other than that, there was no difference. We just saw a little bit increase in adverse effects. And so they said, well, there's no reason to push people lower because we don't see a benefit. The problem we have is, was it actually, was there actually no benefit or was it the A1C, mm-hmm. you know, that aspect being too low that, that counteracted the benefits? Right. Uh, of the the blood pressure arms. Uh, There's a study, a review that came out called Accordion, and it's one of the lead investigators from Accord that discusses all this and discusses how the study wasn't powered uh, correctly to be able to address whether or not there was a a true statistical difference and and brings up some other concerns. So, you know, my personal opinion is, is I like Cole said, you have to look at the patient. You can't just take the guidelines and say, okay, everyone's getting treated to 140 over 90 because these guidelines said so. I think you need to look at it and make it very patient specific and then analyze all the data for yourself and see how it how it pertains to your you know particular patient population that you're dealing with. Yeah, and I mean, if, if you um, don't get a chance to analyze all the data, you could just listen to us and, and uh, yeah, go with that. For sure. But yeah, just one one note on that is they were shooting for an A1C goal less than six, uh, but they didn't even get there. They only got to, I think, 6.4 was the lowest they got before they stopped the trial because people were, were literally dying. Um, and so I think that really does speak to the fact that it, it was the, the intensive A1C, and that should tell you something about where you want your A1C goals to be more so than where you want your blood pressure goals to be, so... That was the Accord trial, um, and they do reference that in the guidelines also. But um, coming in for a landing here, I guess. So we mentioned chlorothaladone being the preferred um, thiazide diuretic, so we won't go into like all the first-line therapies. But what, what are you generally going to, to start with in patients with stage 1 hypertension? Uh, you could either do ACE-ARB, uh, you could do a calcium channel blocker, uh, and they can do, you could do a thiazide diuretic. Do they still recommend a uh, calcium channel blocker? first line for african-americans yes. the new guidelines yes yeah, so the new guidelines they still say with african-americans um unless they have chf or um post mi i believe uh even if they have diabetes they should be started on a calcium channel blocker or thiazide and i think that is one um big change that kind of uh, coincides with the ada update from 2017 um of you don't necessarily have to treat like when whenever i see a diabetes or a patient with diabetes, the first thing that pops into my mind is, uh, you know, ACE or ARB, statin, are they on these things? Um, not every patient with diabetes is indicated for an ACE or ARB anymore based on these guidelines. So why is that? The, originally, we thought that if we gave someone with diabetes an ACE inhibitor, we would prevent them from having um, microalbuminuria and, and worsening kidney function. However, as more studies have come out, more meta-analyses, we've seen that that doesn't always play out. That we don't actually that we don't actually reduce the risk of them developing um, the the kidney damage um, or proteinuria. And mm-hmm. so they've kind of backed off on that recommendation a little bit and have said basically once the person has uh, albuminuria, then they can go ahead and start an ACE inhibitor or an ARB at that point. Uh, on target showed um, that an ARB can have just the same effect that an ACE can as far as kidney protection. But 
uh, th- that's kind of where they've moved the, their recommendations now is, is to wait till the person actually has um, proteinuria before they actually go ahead and start the ACR or recommend that. You can still start it. It's not going right. to cause problems. Right. Uh, I, I'm still a little bit leery about starting first line calcium channel blocker it's not wrong to do that but and this is more my opinion less so than it is based but on it's evidence based but, on physiology yeah um but calcium channel blocker if you're starting that first line you know in the in the kidney you're going to dilate the afferent arterial which allows potential interglomerular pressure to, to build and you could then kind of induce this proteinuria over time whereas if you're giving an ace you're going to dilate the efferent arterial and interglomerular pressure will go down. Mm-hmm. And so if someone has diabetes, especially if they have a family history of kidney disease, things like that, uh, I'm a little bit more leery about starting them on a calcium channel blocker by itself. Uh, if I did, I would use that in combination with, with an, ACE. an ACE inhibitor, kind of like they did in the accomplish trial. Right. But um, it's not wrong to now to have uh, someone who has diabetes starting them on a calcium channel blocker. I right. just, I try to avoid it if possible, more so based on my just own fears. Right, and if, and they do address that. So if they're anyone but an African-American, first line can be ACE, ARB, calcium channel blocker, or thiazide if they don't have albuminuria. So it's fine to go ahead and start them on an ACE or ARB if that's what you want, if they don't have any um, issues with hyperkalemia or anything like that, risk for AKI, something like that. Um, and you feel comfortable doing that, then that's fine. The only issue arises when you're treating an African-American patient without albuminuria because they recommend that calcium channel blocker or thiazide first line before the ACE. But in that same little box, they do kind of give a caveat that um, that most patients with um, diabetes and hypertension are probably going to end up needing two agents anyway. And they even reference to control their blood pressure. They even say, especially African-American patients. Um, so that is to say that even though you would go ahead and start an amlodipine or a chlorthalidone first line, um, you'll probably very soon be adding on potentially an ACE or ARB, which will kind of uh, negate the negative effects on the kidney that amlodipine or calcium channel blockers might uh, pose. So, Yeah. And kind of going a little bit off track, but well, I guess if, if you haven't noticed, one of the big points we're trying to make is that everything that you're doing clinically or recommendations that you're making, whatever the case may be, should be based on the literature. Something, yeah. It should, should be based on something and not just what you were taught in school, not just what you've always done. Uh, that's just... That's why you see a whole lot of HGTZ out there. Is... Yeah, it's it's cheap. It's what I've always progressed. And then atenolol. Atenolol for blood pressure. Same primary thing. primary treatment for blood pressure. Give them atenolol, call it a day. Um, it's just not... It's not something that we, we have any evidence we want to prevent them from having an issue in the right. future we don't want to just treat arbitrary numbers and we saw this i'll give this last case in point but and we saw this firsthand with like accomplish when they compared benazapril and actz versus benazapril and amlodipine mm-hmm. there was no difference in blood pressure lowering as as far as that outcome but we did see decreased mortality right. and my stroke altogether, uh, not stroke by itself, but um, the primary composite was statistically different. So if, if we're getting a decrease in all those things, but we're not having a decrease in the short-term blood pressure goals, we clearly need to be looking more at a long-term scope and not only treating certain numbers. Right. Um, we really need to be looking at the agents, which ones have evidence, how they work physiologically, and using all of that kind of information together to be making recommendations 
There's nothing worse than, oh, I've just always done it this way. That's that's terrible. Don't do that. <laughs> For sure. And if you disagree with us, let us know. We'd love to uh we'd love to hash it out or um, you know, if we if we'll we agree with you. you on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> or <kidding>. Instagram, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll, wherever. We'll unfollow you. Um <laughs> well, but yeah, just to reiterate that there are, there are there are agents that have shown um that have shown to decrease events uh and it's not just about treating the numbers just like you said and they even reference that in the guidelines they specifically say atenolol was not shown to decrease cardiovascular events so go with the, one of the ones that are evidence-based they also say beta blockers uh for most disease states should not be used first line for hypertension even though that's kind of happens a lot um unless they are post mi or have um some type of i think um non-ischemic heart disease potentially um anyways don't quote me on that one but um otherwise yeah they they reference a lot of things that um that a lot of evidence-based practitioners have known um i I think that there's definitely two sides to the coin of these uh blood pressure guidelines um you know we're we're realists we're pragmatists we know that this is probably going to result in more patients ending up on um, pharmacologic therapy just because that's the way that things go Uh, but that's not the intention of the guidelines. The intention of the guidelines is to promote healthy lifestyle, to get on top of the blood pressure before it gets too out of control. Um, and again, it emphasizes, uh, the, the point that we made earlier of taking blood pressure correctly. If you want to get one of those true BP meters for your practice, I think they're what, a few hundred bucks. Um, Uh, I think they're like, I want to say like 1500. Okay. More than I thought. Yeah. We, we, we don't look for the company. We're just, no, we, we just like, we just like the, uh, the meter, the, device itself but if it's they pretty, want to give us some free devices cool. yeah you know, we'll showcase them sure. that's fine that would be, cool. <laughs> <laughs> be awesome i, I doubt I, I doubt it no I maybe doubt. after we have a million followers yeah maybe so something like that well appreciate y'all staying with us this long uh well like i said this is just episode one we're going to try to bring on more specialists and and talk about very specific disease states uh you can reach us at coreconsolerx.com uh, or on use that handle for any of the major social media platforms twitter instagram facebook snapchat yada 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 uh all the rest of them so um, we are always open to suggestions and ideas for topics so let us know and uh, like cole said if you have something you want to say we'll be happy to uh put you on and, and let you voice your opinion or tell us why we're wrong appreciate y'all listening thanks guys